Well, in the midst of the unfolding tragedy in the Ukraine, it has been fascinating to reflect upon the differences between the two leaders, Vladimir Putin and Volodymyr Zelensky. Putin, well, he is the career politician, isn't he? He rose through the ranks of the KGV and, and he rules through threats, spreading misinformation to his own people, living a life of opulent and secret wealth, bearing a grudge at the fall of communism way back when, and fighting this war hundreds of kilometres away by remote control, safely back in his palace in Russia. Zelensky... He came to office two and a half years ago after a career in acting and comedy. And he's united his country by his courageous leadership. And now he is literally at the front line of the battle, wearing bulletproof armour, bravely defending his country against an oppressor. The contrast couldn't be greater, could it? And for us, Zelensky seems to be the leader that we love. He's fighting for his people. He's risking his own life in the service of his country. He embodies, at least it appears, a servant leadership. He knows he's the number one target for the Russian army and apparently they've already had a go at trying to kill him and his family. And yet he risks everything for his people. There's something kind of like Jesus in that. And with this in mind, let's reflect now upon Jesus and his leadership and also the leaders who were around him and opposing him. Today we turn to Matthew chapter 21. We'll see some Jewish rulers. They will fight to keep things their way. They will reject a new grassroots religious movement that challenges their authority. And then we'll see Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, who arrives in Jerusalem humbly and boldly leading the nation of Israel to their ultimate salvation. How? Through his own costly death. Two very different leaders. And today, Jesus arrives at Jerusalem, right in the very epicentre of the climate, of, of, the, of, the, um, of the conflict. And we see here that the coming of the king will bring controversy. The coming of the king will bring controversy. Right here, we see that Jesus gets very close to the place where it's all going to happen. And we see this in the first verse. As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. It kind of sounds just like another random geographical note, but it's pretty important. The Mount of Olives is the mountain on the east side of Jerusalem, which is higher than Jerusalem. It actually looks down on Jerusalem over a deep valley, which is the valley that had the Garden of Gethsemane. So that's a photo that I took a couple of years ago from the top of the Mount of Olives. You can see there's that golden dot in the centre. That is the place where the temple originally was. And it's a steep hill down into that valley and then up the other end. We were standing on the Mount of Olives, looking down over Jerusalem. Now, you might think that that's interesting, 
I think it's interesting because I took that photo and it's pretty cool. But there's a lot more to the Mount of Olives than just the fact it's a really good place to see views of Jerusalem. Because if we want to really understand what's happening with the Mount of Olives, and indeed a lot of the action in today's chapter from Matthew, it'd be better, rather than putting a photo up on the screen of the Mount of Olives, to turn to a part of the Bible that talks about the Mount of Olives. And that is the Old Testament prophecy of Zechariah. I'm going to read to us for, from five verses at the start of Zechariah chapter 14. Make a mental note of them because they are all very significant for what Jesus is going to be doing in today's chapter. Zechariah 14, 1-5. Watch, for the day of the Lord is coming when your possessions will be plundered right in front of you. I will gather all the nations to fight against Jerusalem. The city will be taken, the houses looted, the women raped. Half the population will be taken into captivity and the rest will be left among the ruins of the city. Then... The Lord will go out to fight against those nations as he has fought in times past. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will split apart, making a wide valley running from east to west. Half the mountain will move towards the north and half towards the south. You will flee through this valley, for it will reach across to Azal. Yes, you will flee as you did from the earthquake in the days of King Uzziah of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all his holy ones with him. Everybody who was a faithful Jew, a faithful Israelite in the Old Testament days, was waiting for that moment. That is what they've been looking forward to. And now where is Jesus? He's on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is not a coincidence. And as they gather at this important place, Jesus gives an unusual command. Verse 1b and 2 and 3. Jesus sent two of them ahead. Go into the village over there, he said. As soon as you enter it, you'll see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone asks what you're doing, just say... The Lord needs them, and he will immediately let you take them. Jesus has organised his own special transport. But why would it be a donkey and a colt? Well, Matthew tells us, verse 4 and 5, this took place to fulfil the prophecy that said, Tell the people of Jerusalem, Look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. He quotes from the Old Testament. Which book do you think he quotes from the Old Testament? Zechariah. Not chapter 14 that I read out then, but chapter 9, just a few chapters before that. Can you see how it's Zechariah that's right there behind the scenes as we see what Jesus is doing here? It's this section that's talking about the last days. And Matthew wants us to see that these last days events are happening now. 2,000 years ago, they are the last days that they've been waiting for. The reason is that Jesus is the king who would come to Jerusalem and he would be a humble king. Not like a Putin, but more like a Lezensky. If you had not read Matthew before and yet you were a person who knew your Old Testament really, really well, then reading this stuff for the very first time would bring you goosebumps. They would make 
the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. It's like, is this it? Is this it? Is this it? Because that's exactly what we should be feeling as we're looking at this right now. So what happens? Verse 6 and 7. The two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over the colt and he sat on it. And then the crowd reacted. How? Verse 6 to 9. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him. And others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the centre of the procession and the people were all around him shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in highest heaven. There was a time when Jesus was saying, Hey, be quiet about who I am. It's not the right time yet. I think it's safe to say that that time is over because Jesus no longer hides his identity as king. He's happy for them to say, You're the Son of David. You're the king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They are recognising and shouting out that Jesus is the son of David, the descendant of David, but greater even than David. He is the ultimate Messiah, the ultimate king of God's people. He is the one that they've been waiting for. And everyone seems to notice. Everyone. Verse 10 and 11. The entire city of Jerusalem was in uproar as he entered. Who is this, they said. And the crowds replied, it's Jesus, the prophet, from Nazareth in Galilee. Everyone in Jerusalem is aware of the fuss. The place is in uproar, or more literally, the place is shaken. You know why it says shaken? It's to make us sort of think in terms of earthquake language. This is genuinely earth-shattering, what is happening right here. And everyone knows the name of this king. It's Jesus from Nazareth. They say he's just a prophet. Well, he's a bit more than that, that's for sure. So what will happen? This is the moment. He's coming to Jerusalem. They've said, woohoo! and he's arrived what's going to happen where's he going to go what's he going to do how's he going to come in as his king into Mount Zion into Jerusalem well we read in verse 12 that he goes to the temple and he begins to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice he knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves he goes to the epicenter of the faith of Israel the temple was where that little gold dot was that you saw in the middle of the screen before. He goes right there. And as he arrives there, he cleanses the temple. He goes from this humble, cult-riding king to being kind of like this physically aggressive, angry ruler. It's kind of a bit of a weird thing. You sort of think, hang on, how's it, what, what's going on here? Why would he go into the outer area of the temple and start to smash the place up? Because you think, weren't these people just helping out the travellers? You know, you'd kind of turn up to Jerusalem and you'd say, hey, I've got a few shekels in my pocket. Any chance I could kind of get some change? Because I've got to go and, you know, and I've got to go and buy some, you know, birds and doves so I can sacrifice them. And they say, sure, we're really convenient. We'll set it up inside the temple. Everyone's a winner. Now, Jesus wasn't so happy about that. It's because what they had done, well, he explains, verse 13, he says... The scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. 
He sees it there and it's been commercialised. The marketplace has stained the purity of the temple and its courts. And it's exactly what was said would happen in which book? Oh, Zechariah. In fact, the very, very, very last verse of Zechariah says, And on that day there will no longer be traders in the temple of the Lord of Heaven's armies. You know, you kind of got Zechariah here and you're looking at Jesus going, Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Oh, hang on, found it here. It's kind of tick. Jesus is fulfilling all these things that are supposed to happen when the king comes and when God comes in the last days. Right here, the prophecy of Zechariah was being fulfilled. Goosebumps stuff. It's like, whoa, it's happening right here. Because the Lord has come to Jerusalem and he will fight for his people and he will bring them from victory. And then there's a bit of a change. He does something really quite gentle. Verse 14, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. You see, up to that time, if you were imperfect because you had those physical imperfections, you weren't really welcome to go into the temple. But the king comes and he heals them so that they might be right there in the presence of God. It's just what was said in, in which part of the Bible? Oh, Isaiah, sorry, that was a trick question. Isaiah 35 says, And when he comes, he will open the eyes of the blind and unplug the ears of the deaf. The lame will leap like a deer, and those who cannot speak will sing for joy. He's doing exactly what the servant of the Lord would do when he arrives. He's doing it right there. There'd be something wrong if you didn't see the significance. Verse 15, we read in Matthew, The leading priests and the teachers of religious law saw these wonderful miracles. Wow. And they heard even the children in the temple shouting, Praise God for the son of David. How exciting. Will they get on board? The leaders were indignant. They couldn't have been confused about what was happening in front of them. The son of David has come. He has cleansed the temple. He has healed the lame and the blind. The kids are saying, wow, the son of David's come and the leaders are angry. The kids worked it out, but the leaders were angry. They assumed that Jesus also would be upset. It's like, tell those kids to stop that. They they shouldn't be talking about you in that way because that's blasphemy. (laughs) But Jesus said... Because they said, do you hear what these children are saying? Jesus said, yeah. Haven't you ever read the scriptures? Huh? Oh, can I get you a Bible, you Israel leaders? Haven't you read the scriptures? For they say, you have taught children and infants to give you praise. Jesus accepts the praise of the children. And he quotes from Psalm 8. What does Psalm 8 say? O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. Your glory is higher than the heavens. You have taught children and infants to tell of your strength, silencing your enemies and all who oppose you. The, it's exactly this spot here. And so we're at this very moment. What is going to happen right now? Uh, Jesus knocks off for the day. He returns to Bethany where he stays overnight. It's kind of, uh, oh, okay. All right, see you in the morning. No worries. Off he goes. He goes to Bethany, which is kind of at the top of the Mount of Olives, sort of back where he was, all the way down into the Hidron Valley and all the way back up to the top. It's a bit of an anticlimax. 
But the next day he's back. And we read about this in verse 18. In the morning as Jesus was returning to Jerusalem, he was hungry. And he noticed a fig tree beside the road. Yum. He went over to see if there were any figs. But there were only leaves. And then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again. And immediately the fig tree withered up. <laughs> what? <laughs> it's a bit weird. Uh, you may have read that many times and it's less weird. Uh, it's still weird, I tell you. It's kind of like Jesus has skipped breakfast and he goes to his favourite cafe and he turns up and the shop's closed. And he says, oh, sorry, we'll be back tomorrow. And he's like, huh. And <laughs> it's like, that's weird. Like you're the king. Do you really, you're the creator of the universe. Do you really need to lose your cool when you don't get a bit of fruit off a vine, surely? But the reason for it is that fig trees with leaves are supposed to have fruit. This is a weird tree. It had one job, make figs. But it failed. And because that fig tree failed, Jesus condemns it. Why, why did he do that? I, I have that question as well. And I wonder if you've got that question. And if you do, that's the right question. Uh, why did the Lord of the universe get so grumpy at one little fig tree? And the answer is, the fig tree represents something. No surprise there. It represents Israel. In particular, it represents the leadership of Israel. And it reminds us of the prophecy of Micah, which is also near the end of the Old Testament. I'm going to read three verses out from chapter 7. Have a look at it and see if it helps. How miserable I am. I feel like the fruit picker after the harvest who can find nothing to eat. Not a cluster of grapes or a single early fig can be found to satisfy my hunger. The godly people have all disappeared. Not one honest person is left on the earth. They're all murderers, setting traps even for their own brothers. Both their hands are equally skilled at doing evil. Officials and judges alike demand bribes. The people with influence get what they want and together they scheme to twist justice. This fig tree represents Israel's bad leadership, promising lots but delivering nothing. And what Jesus is doing right there at that time is he is showing the judgment that is about to come to the corrupt leaders. If they will not accept him, then what happened to the tree will happen to them. And they will get it because they deserve it. Now the disciples saw this. They also were like, whoa, why? But their, their question was different to the why. Because in verse 20, they were amazed. They saw this and they asked, how? <laughs> how did the fig tree wither so quickly? How did he make it happen so fast? Now, the obvious, obvious answer is this. I mean, oh, disciples, let Jesus, just, just let me answer it for you. He's the son of God. He controls the weather. He rose a bloke from the dead. You think he'll have any trouble just getting out a bit of kind of divine roundup like that? It's, it's not that hard. That would have been my answer. Um, I'm not the son of God, that's for sure. Jesus gives a different answer, which is interesting. Verse 21 and 22, he told them, when they say how, he says, I tell you the truth. If you have faith and don't doubt, you can do things like this and much more. You could even say to this mountain, may you be lifted up and thrown into the sea and it will happen. You can pray for anything and if you have faith, you will receive it. If I was the disciples, I'd be like, 
Well, that's really interesting, but that's not exactly the question I uh, answer. I, the question I asked. And what's more, as I listen to that, I don't naturally find comfort in that. Because I think, okay, so you're saying if I can really, really, really have faith, then I can do some fancy tricks like kill off the weeds or the good trees if I wanted to. You know, you're saying that I just need more faith, more faith, more faith. That's what the disciples need to have. That's what Christians today need to have. You know, if we had more faith, could we have stopped the floods in Lismore? Or wiped out COVID? Or bring peace to the Ukraine? If we just have more faith, we'll have more power. You could kind of naturally read it that way. But I don't think that's what it's talking about. Because nobody has that kind of faith. Not one human. Well, actually one human. Jesus. He's the only God with that faith. And so what we see here is that Jesus is talking about his own faith, not theirs. Now, I know that he says your faith, but I, I think even in English we'll, we'll kind of say something that is similar when we're, saying, when we're meaning something different. I'll show you what I mean. Someone might say, you know, how did you score that goal? The person says, well, you know, you just kicked the ball into the goal. Oh, okay. Now, I didn't say I kicked the ball into the goal. I just talked about how a person would do it. Jesus asked, how do you do it? He says, well, you just have faith. He's talking about his own faith. They asked him about how he did it, and he answers this way. He's talking about his own faith. He's talking about this significant moment. But he talked about a mountain. He didn't say a mountain. He said this mountain. Zechariah 14, verse 4. On that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives will split apart, making a wide valley running from east to west. Half the mountain will move towards the north and half towards the south. I reckon Jesus is saying, what you're seeing here is, is the Zechariah 14 stuff. All this is going to happen because of the faith of Jesus. These catastrophes will happen when the Lord arrives. Anyway, they go back to Jerusalem, verse 23. Jesus returns to the temple and he began teaching. The leading priests and elders came up to him and they said, by what authority are you doing all these things? Who gave you the right? You think, okay, is that the best that they can come up with, with 12 hours notice? They've gone home and thought, oh, what's going to be our question for him tomorrow? Well, Jesus comes back and he says, well, I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. If you answer just one question, they're thinking, okay, this can't be too hard. Jesus says, did John's authority to baptise come from heaven or was it merely human? And they go, ah, uh, just give us a moment. And they talk about it over them, amongst themselves. And they say, oh, if we say it was from heaven, he'll ask us why we didn't believe John, because we didn't. But if we say it was merely human, we'll be mobbed because the people believed John was a prophet. Well, what do we say? I don't know, what do we say? I don't know, what do we say? Uh, so they finally replied, we don't know. And Jesus said, then I won't tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus has got nothing to lose. He tells it like it is. But he doesn't stop there. No, he doesn't. Instead of an answer, he actually gives them a story. Verse 28, he says, but what do you guys think about this? 
a man with two sons. He told the older boy, go out and work in the vineyard today. But the son answered, no, I won't go. But later he changed his mind and he went anyway. Then the father told the other son, you go. And he says, yes, sir, I will. Yes, sir, I will. But he didn't go. Did you get it? First guy says, no, but does. The second guy says, yes, but doesn't. And Jesus says to them, so which of the two obeyed the father? And all of the smarties said, it was the first. And Jesus explained this meaning, I tell you the truth, corrupt tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you do. But John the Baptist came and showed you the right way to live. But you didn't believe him. While tax collectors and prostitutes did. And even when you saw this happening, you refused to believe him and repent of your sins. They were shown the way of righteousness, but they rejected John the Baptist. And because they rejected John, they will reject Jesus too. And then it ends with a long parable with a simple message. I'll just read it to us. Verse 33. Listen to another story Jesus goes after them with. A certain landowner planted a vineyard and he built a wall around it and he dug a pit for pressing out the grape juice and he built a lookout tower. And then he leased the vineyard to tenant farmers and he moved to another country far, far away. At the time of the grape harvest, he sent his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers grabbed his servants. They beat one, they killed one, and they stoned another. So the landowner sent a larger group of his servants to collect for him, but the results were the same. And finally, the owner sent his son, thinking, surely they'll respect my son. But when the tenant farmers saw his son coming, they said to one another, here comes the heir of the estate. Come on, let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. So they grabbed him, dragged him out of the vineyard and murdered him. And when the owner of the vineyard returns, Jesus asked, what do you think he'll do to those farmers? What do you think? He asks the religious leaders. They're all sitting around listening to this. And they say, he'll put the wicked men to a horrible death and he'll lease the vineyard to others who will give him his share of the crop to, after each harvest. Yeah. Jesus basically retells this story out of the Old Testament book of Isaiah from chapter 5. But who are the bad guys? The bad guys, the wicked men, are the Jewish leaders. The ones who were listening to the story and said, oh, that's really bad. Because Jesus then says, didn't you ever read the scriptures? You guys should get yourself a Bible. After all, you work in a temple. The stone that the builders rejected has now become this cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is wonderful to see. Jesus is the stone. He is the rock. He's the cornerstone by which the entire building is built. But these Jewish leaders have rejected him. And so, verse 43, Jesus says, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, you religious leaders, 
and it will be given to a nation that will produce the proper fruit. Fruit. Like fig trees, fruit. Anyone who stumbles over that stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone it falls on. And when the leading priests and Pharisees heard this parable, they realised he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers. And they wanted to arrest him. But they were afraid of the crowds who considered Jesus to be a prophet. (laughs) You just think they'd say, oh, hang on, we're the guys who stone and kill the, the, the owner's kid, the son? Oh, we shouldn't do that, should we? And what do they do? They work out a way to try and arrest him. It's like, are you stupid? Uh, no, I think they knew exactly what they were doing. And so we end up with two centres of leadership. There's the Jewish leadership that wants to take Jesus' life. And there's Jesus who wants to give his life. Who should we follow? Which leader do you think we should follow? Let me pray. We thank you, our Heavenly Father, that Jesus came as your Son. And despite such conflict, nothing stopped him doing what he had to do, dying for us. We thank you, Jesus, that you went to the cross. We thank you that you are indeed the King. May we worship you with our lives, we pray. Amen.